I'm from Australia, the land down under. I am from Brazil. Hi, guys. I'm from South Africa. Tell me something. What would you say if you knew the world was listening? My boss and his wife are terrible people. I mean, I love my man and all, don't get me wrong, but dude is worthless. <laughs> get back in the loop on What's the Word, the international show of word of mouth. You can find us by keying in What's the Word at Acorn Studio. The Big Late presents... I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Daryl Broadfoot. Daryl started out at the Herald newspaper and he quickly rose through the ranks to the position of chief football writer before moving on to become head of communications at the Scottish Football Association. And most recently, he's been leading the line at Frame, a Scottish PR agency with clients that include UEFA, the SFA, and BBC Scotland. We talk about Daryl's experiences across Scottish journalism and PR the accessibility of sport in our society, and we discuss the mollycoddling of the younger generation and whether they're being set up for a spectacular fall. Growth typically only comes as a result of enduring stress or adversity in some form, and we consider the harmful possibilities of sanitising their world a wee bit too much. You'll also hear some funny stories, including a Scottish international sleeping pills kicking in during a post-match interview, and about a high-profile Rangers player in Dutch international possibly indulging in a wee bit of bad behaviour while on pre-season in Sweden. As always, if you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Daryl Broadfoot, thanks very much for taking time at your busy lockdown schedule to come and sit and talk to me. Sorry, I can get the rest of the fence done afterwards. It's uh, <laughs> hi, that's about the highlight of the the day these days. Getting the fence done, it's taken me four weeks, and of course I ran out of paint three quarters of the way through. Which I didn't think was a big problem to realise that everybody else in the country's trying to paint their fence as well. We're on the Amazon, and for a five liter tin of paint, ninety five pound they tried to charge. Shambles. I've uh, I've done the same. I always have this idea like I'll go and, I'll go and I don't know, I'll nip to Halfords and get something for the bike. I will be the only person who's had this idea. And then every time I'm like <laughs> doing that uh, Harry Enfield and Chums style double take when I see there's also other people who've had the same idea as me. I tell you what, my missus have turned into a, a master hairdresser as well. I've 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 paid money for worse haircuts. Your hair so actually looks this is my second lockdown, and it's a terrible thing to see in a podcast because you can't see it. But she's gone for the fade and everything. No, it looks Snoddy great. would be proud of that fade. <laughs> I look. See, I've not let any. I will. I refuse to let anybody touch my hair. I look like I'm wearing a crash helmet. I'm about four weeks away from being Don. <laughs> <laughs> four weeks away from being Donny Osmond, circa 1974. Like it just. It's as if I've walked into the barbers and went, leave the top and I'll take an eight on the back and say, <laughs> I'm surprised you can still buy Soul Glow. Where'd you get it? <laughs> <laughs> it's horrific, absolutely horrific. I look, see when it's she when I came out the shower, I look like Bugsy Malone. Now that hair's all like greased and just <laughs> slick back. 
It's like a that's swimming strange cap. Getting into a, that's strange getting into a shower with a pinstripe suit, right enough. <laughs> Each no, to their own. I anything that... I know you've got to do something to, to entertain you. Uh, we'll we'll kind of we'll we'll move away from. I'm glad we moved away from Tommy to... Guns at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Custard pies, but we'll talk about you and your upbringing. Did you you grew up in Castlemilk? Is that right? I grew up in Castlemilk. Um, it was brilliant. The, the fact that the weird thing about lockdown is you spend more time thinking about your childhood, and I think it's probably because you could go out and do what you wanted. I was I was really lucky. Most of my family all lived within, and I was going to say a mile radius, but the reality is it's probably about a 500 metre radius because we grew up in the tenements. I was staying in a place called Arden, Arden Craig. And my granddad restaurant lived in the next block down. My auntie lived with um, her wains over the backies. My cousin, my big cousin, who basically helped me and took me out, played football every day, he lived with my gran at the time. So we literally just wandered in and out of each other's houses and it was great. Um, and we left and we were, what was I, nine or ten when I left Casamilk? But honestly, it was it was tremendous. And people kept talking about, oh, you know, housing scheme, it must have been rough. No, because I think what changed, all of our neighbours were terrific. And I get, it sounds like something from a bygone era, unconscious of how old I sound. When they say the doors were open, you would just wander in. That's how it was. Mm-hmm. Until in their infinite wisdom, I think the councils then decided they had kind of drug and rehabilitation issues. Um, so they would basically put drug dealer or somebody who'd been in prison into the neighbourhood. And before you know it, the next door neighbour got spooked or left because they didn't want that next door to them. And that's what happened to mm-hmm. us. I remember one day I was terrified because I used to stay two up um, and it was an eight and a block, so second top floor. And the guy in the top floor penthouse, as they called him in Castlemilk, uh, was a, I think it was a, it was a glue sniffer, addicted to glue. Um, and he used to freak me out because he would obviously go in, get fully up, and then just stare, stare out the window. So I used to run as fast as I could up the stairs, get in, shut the door. And by this point, my dad was raging. He did, I think it was kind of six months before we went enough's enough. And the turning mm-hmm. point was phone the polis because he was playing Phantom of the Opera soundtrack about two in the morning off his face. <laughs> and I think my old man was ready to get arrested if he did, you know, knocked him out. The police went up, disturbance, and then came down and said, look, I don't know what your situation is, but just be grateful because if there's one glue canister up there, there's three dozen. So make sure your family are safe. And then, and then the postscript, as my mum and dad told us afterwards, and he, he didn't use the toilet either. So Christ knows what he was doing up there. But that's that's kind of when it turned. Um, some really good football, as I remember, football being your life, as it is for, for most kids in the west of Scotland. Um, mm. Used to play, like, a win law, and they kept talking about this guy who was a couple of years older than us. And I went up to watch them once I was too young to play for the school at that time. Charlie Miller. I remember him scoring for the half railing in a gravel pitch up in Winlow. Um, and he was he was probably the last truly um, great player. I think in a Scottish football context, he was a really, really good player who by his own admission never fulfilled his potential. But they used to produce mm. players like that ten a penny. And that's that's the kind of saddest thing. I don't think there's a lack of talent Castle or, or housing schemes up and down the country anymore. I think the problem is the opportunity. And that's my bugbear. Mm-hmm. 
with regards to people not fulfilling their entire potential, I suppose there's a sort of juxtaposition because I grew up in a, a similar type of area as well and all we ever did was play football. It was just the one thing that we did and there's because there is a lack of anything, not a lack of anything else, because I didn't grow up in Beirut or Baghdad or anything in the middle of a war zone, <laughs> nor, nor did you. Did you not feel that when you tell people that you were shells, now? No. Is that where you grew no, up? No, Rob Royston. Rob oh, Royston, I'm, I'm a stone's throw away from there just now. And the, the thing I was going to say about the sort of juxtaposition was you would have a lot of good footballers because there wasn't as much of anything else to do. You've got uneven pitches, you've got balls that aren't great, so it's developing these great players, but then on the flip side, there's not enough rigidity or sort of positive role models or a sort of reinforcement of here is a structure and the dis- discipline that you have to adhere to and while some of these players may have gone on to forge careers they probably could have done a lot better if they had those you know those un- inbuilt childhood experiences of uh, structure or discipline or you know here's how you kind of need to do things are there players that kind of that you can remember that fell by the wayside that really could have gone on to be something special oh god listen even in my family my cousin was a was a terrific left back and generally played Scottish schools and got to that level but I, I, again there's that bridge between getting the absolute opportunity I, I can see my cousin playing now in uh, school and youth cup finals and he could have been a left back in a Premier League team at that time no problem at all but it's the opportunity and and that's what I think is missing once you get the opportunity then you either take it and you fulfil and you realise and you um, you grasp it or you're not quite ready for it. And we've seen people, I think Charlie King was another one who had a bit of a um, professional career, but crashed and burned early for that very reason. And it's, you know, football's one aspect, but I look at boxing, I'm fortunate enough, boxing's probably my, is it my first love? It's probably joint top love of sports. And it's the same thing. Josh mm. Taylor, one of the most talented boxers that Scotland's produced and, and rightly a world champion. And I get frustrated when I see some of these stuff on social media. And a lot of people that I speak to get annoyed at him as well. And then I think to myself, well, he's come up the hard way. But he's not chosen boxing because he had a list of options and that's that's the one that was most appealing. Most people get into boxing because there's no other way. And you can't then just become, just because you become a world champion doesn't mean that you naturally should behave like an ambassador. Not everybody's going to end up like a, a David Beckham. <laughs> And I'm fascinated with we're off a wee segue here, but you look at Mike Tyson talk of a comeback at fifty. Mike Tyson at fifty-three, judging by his Instagram account, is in better nick now than he was in his last fight. Mm-hmm. And that's because there's a bit of wisdom there as well, and he's been through the worst of it, and he actually is comfortable in his own in his own skin. So to take it back to those um opportunities, we Scott McDermott's another uh, kind of distant relative, obviously Scott works with him. He was an absolutely magnificent player. But just never quite, never quite made it. And yet you see, I think, less talented footballers who make it, who make a good career, because they've got work rate, they've got determination. And I think that's the balance that Scottish football needs to strike again. We've lost that imagination. We can't quite get the natural talent with the application. If we did that, we'd have reams of Andy Robertson. So Andy's a great example. Arguably our best player just now. He's got talent. But Andy is now playing with the, arguably the best team in the world through utter determination and overcoming adversity. You manage that with a latent talent and absolute skill, then we start producing bona fide world-class players again. 
Mm-hmm. I'm reluctant to use Andy Robertson as an example here because it would seem that I'm denigrating him in some way, but I'm absolutely not. But what I would say is, uh, <clears throat> you know, with regards to using the Mike Tyson reference, obviously somebody who's gone through severe adverse childhood yeah. experiences, and we often talk about adverse childhood experiences holding people back when it comes to their educational yeah. attainment or, or how they're sort of applying themselves in school. So you could argue that, Andy Robertson, somebody probably fortunate enough to come from a very solid family background. background. And, yeah, no, and I get that. And Christ, great support. I, I take no comfort from it. A lot of my family are still up in Castle. I've got, a, I've got a young cousin who's in the jail now. God, this has got deep early. You kind of get. What else can you do? What more can you do when you look at the situation and the environment he's in? And that's what I talk about in terms of opportunity. Because he's never seen that opportunity, it's natural that it defaults back to, well, this is my norm. And once you get into that cycle, it's a hell of a thing to to break out of. And it's and it's an absolute crying shame. And he's only, what's he, what's he now, 21, 22? But again, at a young age, a magnificent footballer. Scouts come up watching him, school team, local team. And I think with that background, that determination, a real chance. But victim of his environment and the sad thing is not enough role models now can actually show the way out I mean we had a conversation with Scottish uh, somebody from Scottish Enterprise yesterday mm. and they do a hell of a lot in, in communities uh, areas of multiple deprivation as we now call them in a socially acceptable way um, but we don't do enough you look at the ethnic mix and uh, what we used to call housing schemes, I go back to Castle, and the gene pool of talent that's there without the opportunity, without the the parental guidance um, to actually realise that the talent, the need, that determination can get you a better start at it or a better chance. And it's 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 horrible to see. Talk, something, Tom, <clears throat> excuse me, something Tommy Burns said often, uh, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. So uh, as you say, if we can have some way to to represent that to people that if you can combine both but then God imagine trying you have to, to say Ch- Ch- Charlie Miller Andy McLaren Andy who has had his own uh, issues both with mental health with addiction and they're doing everything they can but they're, they're two people they've got finite resource mm-hmm. and as much as we cannot use Andy Robertson for the reasons you've said as the that's the uh, the symbol of what can happen but actually, the more people that we hero, the more people who actually walk in those shoes, then the ready-made role models will be there. And, and doing it in a way that resonates with people. Not everybody wants the the polished superhero. There are I mean, Scottish football, Scottish sport has had a rogues gallery of, of greats. If you go back to Benny Lynch, and, you know, arguably the best boxer that Scotland's ever, ever produced. You look at players that have come through some of the roughest places up and down the country, Duncan Ferguson for the Ratlock and, and mm. Easter House and you you name it, there's been a a who's who of footballs and, and I think that disconnect has happened over 20, 25 years as, as society's changed, society's become more middle class and actually that gap between what was the working class and those who... Um, suffer from unemployment or, or, or have found themselves in, in hard times, that gap's become huge to the to the point where there's, a, I think, a, a lack of authenticity when governments and bodies try and speak to 
disenfranchised groups. Mm-hmm. With uh, something I hear discussed quite a lot, I think I've even heard you discussing it in Sports Sound as well, is the accessibility of sport, as you say. Society's becoming more middle class. You know, the fact that kids are having to pay to play football, that even how much equipment costs. Like, I'm horrified when I see the, the cost of boots and strips and all these kind of things. But even then, right, pay £10. So it's like, okay, you can take part in this sport, something which has been traditionally, you know, through our society anyway, been used to elevate you from. I don't, I don't, I don't want to speak horribly or, or even in a way that would, that would be offensive to anybody, but, you know, elevate yourself from a position which isn't a great position, let's just say, to speak very euphemistically. Um, and, and it's like, oh, you can only do that if you can pay. So straight away, you're, you're expelling or you're barring these people from that opportunity. I, and I think there's two things. I think there is the manufactured or engineered places to play. So um, the equivalent of Berlia Sports Complex, which was the first one I remember mm-hmm. being built you know, purely, purely for sport. But also, and, and listen, I acknowledge the hypocrisy of what I'm about to say. I think parents as well have become far too insular. And I get that there are things that children shouldn't be exposed to and you want to be protected, but I think they're now in danger of being overprotective. And I say that as somebody who's got a four-year-old and trying to get her on her bike, mercifully she's done that. But they don't play anymore. Kids don't play in groups anymore without having to be mm-hmm. organised and instructed to do it we're all going to the soft play or we're all going again it's a different era and I don't want to sound like an old fat but there's two things I think you accept that facilities and the access to sport is, is too expensive when it's engineered or manufactured because the local authorities will say we need to recure money back somehow well that somehow should be in if we can produce people from these areas then there's a buyback or once we give them that platform then over time it will buy back we keep hearing about return on investment and social return on investment and what economic impact studies are so there's a, there's a way of recalibrating that but aside from that I think the freedom to play as well kids are not going to naturally now tended to go out and play in groups my wee ones during lockdown starting to talk with an American accent because she's watching so much YouTube and you take her out, and mercifully, social distancing, I think these unprecedented times, you have to be careful. But she's got a friend that lives round the, round the road and distance by two or three metres. They can meet up for two seconds on their walk around the park and go. But aside from that, I just think the art of free play has mm-hmm. gone. Now, you can say that parks are no longer as frequent or there's no longer the grass verges that I talked about because it's been replaced by houses. But I think parents can do more to actually encourage kids to go out more. As we did, we had no choice. Mm, I completely agree. It, it kind of, you know, that book. The I think it's called the Molly Codlin of the American Mind. <laughs> good intent. Yeah. Aye, good. That's what, that was happening in my household. Aye, for anybody who's unaware, of this book uh, it was by two guys. I think they wrote an essay a few years ago, basically about how good I, good intentions and bad ideas are setting us up for a generation of failure, a generation of failure. Let's say uh, in the sense that. You know, even in this you for know, the, the best way, of intentions, uh, for the right reasons, because your your paternal instinct is to protect. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we've overdone it. I think even I believe midwives will say it's good for for babies or children to be exposed to certain germs and bacteria because it helps build up their immune system. If you if if kids don't face adversity or they don't go through stressful situations, they're never going to develop the necessary skills to navigate the real world. Even when I look at 
the generation below me. And I think I don't fucking fear any of you. I don't fear any of you coming and taking my place in any way because you're as soft as fuck. You can't even look. This is me really generalising. That probably offend or upset some people, but overall, I think you can't look an adult in the eye. You can't hold a conversation. You struggle to yeah. communicate in a way that isn't through a social media platform. Like I don't fear any of you. I feel like my generation are the last one, the last ones that have this resourcefulness, or I don't know. I sort of get up and go. I, and I don't buy into the kind of the you know the the the, the woke culture or me neither. Um, how, however, people want want to determine it, and I see it in work as well. There's a younger generation who need more validation, more constant reassurance, and more constant dialogue. Mm. I think that's a good thing because I think people are more confident to speak up. Just in the same way that, in a kind of weird way, the 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 influence of X factor on a generation. I mean. You're a podcaster. The, 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 mercifully, there's kind of podcasts and performers and influencers popping up left, right, and centre. And I think that's a great thing that I could not have imagined 20 years ago mm-hmm. because people are now comfy speaking to a camera. People are now comfortable sharing their lives, what's and all, on screen. So I think there's there's positives around that and getting rid of what is an old Calvinistic trait of you know, never, never try and be too cocky, so and just keep yourself to yourself and all that nonsense. But as you see, on the flip side, the resilience seems to have gone. And again, I people ask me where I was born and stuff. I kind of feel a bit guilty. You feel like a fraud. And I was like, "Ask me if you want to sound hard." That's where I grew up, mm-hmm. and I was fortunate enough that I had a stable family. Fortunate enough that I had a, as my football career failed spectacularly. Um, I went into the Herald for a week's work experience with no expectations. I, I, I wanted to play football and it never happened. Get released to Queen's Park and thought, if I get released to Queen's Park, that's not really going to happen. Um, but got into journalism and, and not by some grand design or a strategy, just by my uncle helping me and I'll be eternally grateful to him to get a week's work experience that turned into a year making tea and coffee for folk that then turned into go to a game, you know, your football and that's what's happened um, but the resilience and, and genuinely I, I have the greatest of respect and sympathies for people just now coming out laden with degrees struggling to get jobs because they're not that readily available mm-hmm. The um, I've not had a job interview in my life I, I feel like the in terms of where, just as well I, where I am in terms of that that generational divide I think I'm so I'm I'm old enough to remember a time before this the way the world is and I'm old enough to remember a time before even mass technology but I'm also young enough to have been have my life has been permeated or has has been sort of enveloped in it like it's they're they're inextricable in that sense but I can remember both of those and I do look at people I don't know if it's the younger generation and it sounds like I'm bashing them because I'm not but I mean fact is fact um always I don't know need feeling very entitled as if the world owes you something. The world owes you fuck all, pal. And I think the quicker you realise yeah. that, um, yeah. things will be a lot easier. So as I say, maybe it's me laying down a challenge to younger people, but I don't fear you as a generation as, as taking anybody's place because you're not tough enough, unfortunately. I, and, and, and leaders play a lot in that as well. You look at the state of politics, not just in the UK, um, but throughout the world, not, not least in America. And I think there's a lot to be said for that as well, that sense of entitlement that, I've been disenfranchised. I've got somebody with weird hair in charge of me. I mean, if you don't test yourself, whether it's football practice, whether it's fitness, or, or as you say, the, the the laws of the jungle. 
how they're surviving. And listen, I wasn't, I was never hard. I was uh, a bit of a soft kid, but my cousins could look after themselves. And you kind of realise that you don't want to be a smart ass because you're, you're you're not strong enough for that. But find a way, find find your own way out of it, mm-hmm. your own way to be relevant. I think going streetwise. Through, I, I think that I think that's the summary. There's people aren't as streetwise as they used to be. Completely, I completely agree. Uh, streetwise, uh, that streetwise mentality is kind of evaporating a wee bit, and I think that there are so many people who have gone far too far through life without receiving a crack in the jaw, and I mean that proverbial as well as literal. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You need a wee, yeah. you, you need that in times. Um, I and I think God, when I like looking back in some of the some of the football coaches that I had, uh, some of the bosses that I had, these people would be up at. And today, by today's standards, would be up at. Well, I, I suppose today's standards is debatable, but maybe societal expectations would be up in tribunals. They would be maybe yeah. have the police knocking at the door. But back then, you're like, that's normal. You deal with it. Um, you, as you I would say, you the Geneva Convention. <laughs> Whereas back then, it's just it's just how it was. There were there were every area had a Christy Cullen, who was the guy I was petrified of until one day I jumped from the stairs and cracked him one. Um, <laughs> But but we all have them, the bullies, and you stand up to them and you get a bit of respect or you live your life constantly being bullied by them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not it's not as easy as that now and, and, and kind of the culture of bullying exists in so many, so many different ways. But in that kind of building of resilience, it, it does, you, you're toughened up and, and as much as people can say, oh, you, housing scheme back, best thing, singularly the best thing that could ever happen to me in terms of understanding as you say, how to be streetwise, understanding what a close-knit family is. I was so lucky that I had family scattered, as I said, within kind of 500,000 yards of each other. And I took that for granted. And now you realise just how, how important it was to your upbringing and how those relationships stay with you for, for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. In, in relation to developing resilience and realising that the world doesn't owe you anything, so you, as an 18-year-old, are around about that age of release for Queen's Park, and uh, you, you go into, was it the Herald then, to, to do work experience? What were your expectations at that? I had no idea, because what happened is I left, I was going to go back for six years, went at Kings Park Secondary in uh, Southside, roughly the same time as I'd been scouted from Battlefield Boys Club to go and play with Queen's Park. And had the tail end, and I, you know, never trained with the first team. But we all kind of trained together Tuesday and Thursday. And Eddie Hunter, whose name will probably not mean anything to, to many people listening, but he was off. Like he's like the the drill sergeant in Good Morning Vietnam, where he used swear words as punctuation. <laughs> and Brian McPhee was a star striker at the time, and I've never seen anybody run like Brian McPhee. And one day, Brian McPhee must have missed a couple of sitters because that Tuesday, honestly, Eddie Hunter was just cursing constantly had two wingers and the session for Brian was effectively shooting from the penalty box with Eddie Hunter you fucking useless bastard you know fucking the same again <laughs> and to, what was a 16 17 year old at the time going this is this is me this is mental um, I wasn't mentally ironically enough I don't think it was mentally tough enough to have made it I think in terms of talent mm-hmm. I probably had enough athleticism, I was always the quickest, pride of myself in being the quickest player at every team I was at. And I was a right back, so that was a real asset. I remember pre-season, and I went, it couldn't have gone any better. I was made captain for the first pre-season game in the youths. 
it coincided, and I still blame my eyesight for it, it coincided with me finishing my hires and feeling my eyes weren't quite right. But of course, you're too shy to go, I think I need glasses. And certainly too young to go, mm. I think I need contact lenses. But I maintain that there was a kind of three, six month period where I literally, you couldn't see properly. Um, and you were clouding up and it affected your judgment. Your head goes down and before you know it, you, you realise the writing's, writing's on the wall. And ironically enough, one of the guys, <laughs> a blame friend in my career was Willie Neal, who became the Scotland kit man. So uh, we had a, a few laughs and jokes down the way. <laughs> But that was a that was a harsh lesson because you put all your eggs in one basket and don't really know what you want to do. I was decent at English, hated maths, couldn't understand maths. Um, so I thought, well, I'm good at English. I like football. How they are. And my uncle, who was, was GPM, you know, the kind of graphic printers, you know, was kind of high up there. So well, why don't you try and in for a bit of work experience at a newspaper? I could maybe get you in at the Herald. So in for a, a week's work experience, which the experience was making tea and coffee for people and they would get their weight wait until you came back to the canteen mm-hmm. to send you back up again but at the end of it the copy girl as she was at the time uh, had enough just didn't come to work one Monday so I get the phone call saying like, I know you've been on work experience but copy girl's left you fancy coming in doing that for a bit and then if you like it we'll see if we can put you through a journalism course so that's when I first met Tommy Jordan now head of comms at Aston Villa, uh, Robert Greve, now chief uh, football writer for the Sun, um, and there was sort of Daryl King, who's now in America, used to used to work for the Evening Times. We all started off as copy boys and girls, making tea and coffee for folk. Neil Cameron, mm-hmm. ex of uh, Evening Times Daily Record, and it was brilliant. And it was brilliant to this little kind of camaraderie. People would throw. Shit. I was lucky. I was at the Herald. There was a, a degree of decorum, but you could imagine that among some of the Herald. Uh, reporters what it was like having a boy for Casimir so where are you from Casimir you could see them kind of go mm-hmm. where, where, where's that <laughs> um, but at least they were civilised over at the evening times they didn't even get called their name they used to shout copy and part of your job was to try and remember whose voice that was and what they wanted and invariably it was go get me my expenses go get me tea go get me coffee but again we talk about resilience it was character building used to double your money on a Friday. You'd go up to the, the cashier's window. You wonder why newspapers are fucked. You'd go up to the cashier's window on a Friday to get everybody's expenses. At that point, 150 folk in the editorial floor. So you could go up, get their expenses. They'd usually give you the change. Some would literally give you three pence. Some would give you a pound or two. Mm-hmm. Take them down and convert them into beer tokens at the press bar. Um, but but it really did give you a ground. And I gravitated towards the sports desk and sports editor at the time, Ian Scott realised that I brought something because I knew all the current footballers and you could identify pictures and sent me out to do some matches and before I I knew it I was effectively a kind of part-time sports writer going to a game at a weekend while doing um, a kind of journalism course at Bell College as it was in in University of Western Scotland now but some some horrific tales some funny like really funny funny stories but some horrific tales from the past as well from old copy boys the old chief reporter at the time guy called Ian Wilson used to set up scams and what have you and he said look careful what you do they had a big blue subbing pencil and Ian when he was copy boy used to get the tea for everybody but rather than stirring it with a spoon he would basically just get the sugar and the milk and stir it with a big subbing pencil until people started going off work sick and about half the newsroom went off with lead poisoning 
because over a period of time they just was <laughs> stirring their tea with lead pens. There was a, a great sub-editor whose surname escapes me, but his nickname was Jimmy Two Jackets. And again, you had a pub right downstairs. And he was so good, he loved the big punny headline and what have you. But when the boss came over to the the chief sub and go, where's Jimmy? Ah, he can't be far, he's flags on the desk and his jacket's over his chair. All ah, right, fair. Jimmy Two Jackets is aptly named because he came into work every day with two jackets and two packets of fags so he could go down to the pub first thing in the morning. <laughs> that 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 sort of um I love that 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 obviously sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for identity around journalism it obviously has changed vastly were you at that oh, listen, those were what's called but I, I, I was fortunate enough to be I think schooled by the last bastions of proper journalism aye that's what I was going um, to say you've come in at the tail end and you've 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 got that education but then things have maybe got somewhat easier or more civilised I suppose you could call it I, I, I don't, don't, don't get me wrong I think what's what's happened to journalism you could see it happening in terms of the the, the wastefulness of money and, and the stories that I recall fondly but if you're sitting in the accounts department going what? So I understand that the business has changed I understand that and it's a it's an interesting debate because people say, oh, you know, journalism's it's not. It's, it's it's arguably more important than ever before. It just lives in a different place, uh-huh. and it's, it still stuns me that people still produce a physical copy of a paper and haven't calibrated the ad revenue. So, media has never been more important. It's never been more widely consumed. It's just the game's changed, and if you're not nimble enough to embrace it, then sadly you're going to die. Do you think newspapers will ever become completely obsolete? Newspaper, the physical art of paper, I'm surprised mm. it's not obsolete by now. And I, I say that as somebody who was, I love nothing better than getting a, getting my Sunday papers and going for a coffee. Don't do it now. I've got, I'm fortunate enough to get the Times and Sunday Times online. I read most of my stuff online. Even me, as a dyed-in-the-wool defender of newspapers and somebody who's school don't do it anymore and so my question is to the innovators and the, and the big businessmen behind the comes you must find the solution by now because otherwise you're going to become irrelevant and the ones who have been adept at it the aforementioned time sunday times mail online etc mm-hmm. will continue to thrive <clears throat> i watched the herald documentary a couple of months ago it was heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking because they've still not addressed the fundamental. How do we make this um, a a valuable proposition in the current model? So to do that, you need to make a website that people want to read. You need to get writers that make you compelled to read. But without that, you've got a very expensive paper version that is anathema to the modern generation of of consumers. Mad. And as we move into, obviously, the more online consumption, and as you say, the advertising revenue is what drives it, or the click revenue. Um, it's something I spoke to recently with Paul English, the journalist. And yeah, we were yeah. talk, talking about uh, clickbait and sort of misleading headlines to get people to click. I suppose it's always existed in its antiquated form. It would have been sensationalist or misleading headlines, you know, that sort of grab somebody's attention, but then... Probably something that's got you a lot of grief in the past with, with sub-editors or whoever it is or editors decide upon headlines which are only related to what you've actually written. 
Aye, but but it goes back to you know what what is it that you're going to do to lure the reader in? This is just mm. the extension of it, and again, it goes back to your audience. Uh, you, you can argue whether you like the son of the records clickbait online stuff or not. Actually, it doesn't matter because they will be sitting on the back end with the numbers to justify doing it. Mm-hmm. If you're daft enough to be seduced by it and go, well, that's not really what I expected. Then, well, the fool you. Mm-hmm. But for every one of you who should know better, there's actually a dozen or so folk who actually want to read that because it's salacious enough. It's it, it's one method in what is now, a, a, I think, a more diverse media and journalistic uh, mix. And I think we've become better for it in some regards, but you still have to put a value on proper investigative reporting. There's Mark Daly's stuff yesterday on Nike's uh, alleged um, involvement in the coronavirus epidemic. So that is invaluable. That is investigative journalism at its finest. But that's another part of the mix. Now, I just think there's a, a greater mix of voices, you know, looking at yourself as well. You're an agenda setter. You see some of the people that you get on the podcast and where it lives online. Mm-hmm. People who create content, there's a market for it. Otherwise, you'll be speaking to an echo chamber, which mercifully you're not. So rather than traditional journalists getting uppity about the new media or people on the internet or people who have blogs or content creators having to go to mainstream media, a bit of tension is maybe good and that it keeps it interesting on both sides. But people have to coexist. And if you're not getting the numbers, whether it's an advertising revenue, people reading your stuff or general interest, then you're not going to be around for long. Mm, Darwinism certainly exists across uh, across all aspects or all all facets of life. If you don't adapt, then you very quickly will die. Um, yeah. Speaking of adapting, obviously you've moved through the ranks of the newspaper. You very quickly, well, well, relatively quickly, I would say, became was it chief football writer? It was scary. I had a Sunday sent me a picture of I think it was in my first press conference. I was twenty nine years of age when I was asked to be head of comms at. Scottish FA and at the, at the time I thought it was a wind up because I'd spent the last two or three years slagging off the SFA uh, and and George Pete, God love him and a, a great football man who understood the politics of football phoned up in his gruff went right uh, uh, the PR guy and are you, are you up for it and I immediately went no don't be daft you kidding yourself on um, and then I thought well I've spent two or three years hosing the organisation thinking I know best and he's just called me out if you think you know better and you come and help fix it and mm-hmm. so at 29 with a kind of weird spiky hair I went in completely unprepared for what I was getting into thought I knew it all as a bit of an arrogant journalist who started getting a wee Monday column and thinking there was a dog's ball that's going to the shed on a Friday night <laughs> um, to the first day, in fact, before it even started, George Burley, I think Scott lost it 3 0 to Wales. And right then I knew that my <laughs> my job was about to start the following day. Uh-huh. And that was it. My first job at the SFA was to help with the departure of George Burley. So my first day was George Burley's last, but that's what was needed. And as you say, the street smarts, the the journalistic uh, antenna, I think, was invaluable throughout my time at the SFA and, and since. Because I see a lot of PR folk have never actually been journalists and so they don't truly know or it's not instinctive to them to know how the media think and so depending on what your client or who your client is to think one step ahead knowing what will happen otherwise 
and that's mm-hmm. that's been invaluable to me and I loved it I went in thinking I could change the world and then realised pretty quickly that you know if, if you thought Holyrood was steeped in politics six floor at mm-hmm. Hamden's other level Does, uh, you, you mentioned there are PR people who've never been journalists and I suppose another thing that, that sports fans or footballers will an accusation or a point they'll sort of level or direct at journalists as a way to neutralise them is they'll say, well, you've never played the game, so how do you know? So you obviously have had that experience of playing football. And, and not, yeah, not just me, listen, I, went, I wasn't in any way good enough, but where, where do you draw the line? Do you mm. have to play professional in the top division? I, I think if, if your point's reasoned and you're not trying to be a twat about it, mm-hmm. then it's legit. I think there are people who are you know, miles off and don't actually understand either how the game works or understand it's only words at the end of the day criticism is part and parcel of it I had I remember in week one and I can't remember who it was but one of the first things to greet me when I went to the SFA was the kind of PR society being indignant that a journalist has been given a PR job mm. and at first and you can look back now and go fuck them but at the time I remember being wounded going I didn't expect that. I mean, I, I didn't apply for the job and I wanted to do my best in it, but I didn't realise there was going to be that level of hostility. Mm-hmm. But I think that's just people's fears again and trying to keep things as normal as they are. Things change. Journalism's changed. The art of PR's changed. Um, so you either embrace it or you, you become irrelevant. You become obsolete. That fence, you know, with uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I suppose. Then, based on what you've just said, you would agree that it, it does put you in a far better position. Even, even I suppose, to temper your expectations or your criticisms of the other side of the fence. When you've once you've seen both parts, but I think I become boring, and I and I wrestle with that, and I tell people on a regular basis because I used to love a wee bit of telly and a wee bit of media work when I was a journalist because it, hmm. a little information can be dangerous but it can also make you more controversial but you don't have the same constraints mm-hmm. and my worry kind of life after the SFA when naturally one or two outlets say would you come back in and share your stories or give us a bit of insight having been on the inside um, I worry that it become boring but actually where I, where I enjoy it most is having the insight and being able to kind of steer a conversation away from either hysteria or of people just being controversial for the sake of it. You you become more balanced with it, but equally you can call it bullshit a lot quicker. Mm, that puts me in mind of Mark Snell. There's there's been many times over the years where I would <laughs> I would say something. So Mark Snell for anybody anyone who doesn't know ex SFA uh, comms employee now works at Frame PR. He's worked at Arsenal as well. And, and he's I was all- going to say, make sure you get Arsenal bit in because anytime you have a conversation with Martin, you need to get into the fact that he worked at Arsenal. I know that's why I knew I was putting that in because I knew he'd be upset about it. But there was times when, let's just say, back in the day, as uh, an upset football fan, I would say something, and I would probably just be wanting to vent a wee bit of frustration. And Mark could give it a whole. Actually, the SPA, the SPA on the SFA are different organisations and all that kind of part. And I think, for fuck's sake, man, I'm not going to moan to you anymore because I just get put in my place. The great thing about Mark is that he was schooled in the disciplinary department as well. So he knows all the rules and regulations and he's, listen, I, I love him to bits. While you, you, you're saying that you're maybe reluctant to reveal some of the more salacious things, but what other stuff? You must have had some great away trips, for example. <sighs> 
uh, things that you can talk about a camera member because there's obviously a lot of characters as a, in that as, a, as a journalist or the Scottish FA well, or the Scottish so you mean the play- take your well take your pick because because it would have been the glory days as well or just in the the last coughs and splutters of the glory days as a, a journalist been able to claim expenses and all that I, I well the expenses that <laughs> my favourite story as a journalist and again this this shows you how bugs with Rangers went on a pre-season tour so you'd effectively Rangers and Celtic would go away and you get assigned one of them um, and this year I think Rangers went to Sweden so Malmo so think about it early to mid 20s journalist with a group of other similarly aged sports writers going to the student part of Sweden <laughs> for five nights um, lo and behold Rangers were playing Malmo the following night and we went into the square for a drink as you do just to find your surroundings um, and happened upon a, a bunch of uh, female Swedish students and, and got in a good chat with them and <laughs> remember one of them saying uh, oh you'll be here to, to, to three Rangers I said well yeah how did you know that straight as football fans Ah, oh, yeah, the players were out last night and and we met some of them, you know, I've got, got Frank De Boer's autograph. <laughs> of course, journalists went, Frank De Boer? No, no, you mean Ronald? No, 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 Frank. So right away we were going off, because there were rumours at the time that Frank De Boer was joining mm-hmm. Rangers, but Ronald had been there, no Frank. So by this point, it's 10 o'clock at night, we thought, oh, we need to leave this until tomorrow. Rangers are playing Malmo anyway. We can find out if Frank's come in. So solidarity, let's not start phoning people. Sure enough, Ronald De Boer had a, a dodgy knee for the friendly. Never liked a friendly game, so his his knee flared up. So he's in the row behind the press box. So of course, as the Herald, no, no, you're invited to uh, <laughs> to ask him. So I turn around, Ronald is is Frank here? Uh, Frank? Uh, oh no, uh, Frank is uh, he's in Ibiza with his wife. Why? Well, I ask. So we were out last night in the square and met a couple of girls and one of us actually uh, showed us the autograph of Frank it was on a driving license or a student card but we just kind of went oh well you know how it is uh, sometimes I'm Frank and sometimes Frank is Ronald <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That, that, was, that was quite something and then, then Scotland and, and we haven't touched on it yet but our mutual fear of flying Scotland Macedonia and that like my fear of planes was well known we got in this thing at Glasgow airport and I'd always drove me up the SFA always managed to find airliners and private I've never heard of so we got on this thing to Macedonia and it was a, a, a McDonnell Douglas MD-11 and when I when I got to Skopje I actually did a Google search the thing that the production line stopped in 1981 fuck's sake so if you think about it even if it was one of the last ones off the production line it was going on 30 odd year old Billy Dodd's terrible flyer as well he was at the back where the engine was and this thing rattling. got to take off and I could see the the seal off the, the kind of fire escape starting to crumble so they were winding me up Claire and Kelly who were my team winding me up going well, this door's going to open needless to say about 40,000 feet me and Sean Maloney's a terrible flyer as well. Sean actually, I think Doc used to give him jellies to knock him to sleep. <laughs> like, like BA. This thing hit a jet stream at 40,000 feet. And it's the it's the first... 
I've had some bad experiences, but it's the first time I thought this thing's this thing's going to fall to the fucking ground here. Mm. Big Morris Brannan at the back on his fourth large fucking gin or whatever it was. Going, it's okay, you'll be fine. Sit down. <laughs> as I'm trying my phone to say goodbye to my mum. <laughs> got got there. Spoke to Sean. Sean was out the game. He just overdosed and went whoa. <laughs> they used to go to the gym just for a wee listener after they got to the hotel and I went down as well and Sean came up and he said eh, what did you think of that I said that's the most horrific flight ever I, that plane's for 1981 at best he said eh, why don't we just maybe try and get another way back even if we need to get a train I don't think I can go back on that <laughs> so the night of the game Sean actually scored the winner I think it was an injury time 2-1 Akechi Anya scored that day as well I know uh, media team used to do the post-match interviews. So Sean had again gone to speak to the doc. I mean, we did the interview and I'd taken some as well just to make sure that I could sleep through it. Sean got halfway through his interview and then he started to talk. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I have to wrap up the interview because he was starting to foam at the mouth because the, the sleeping tablets were kicked in. I'm fine. Like I, I enjoy flying and I love it. But when something's when things start to get shaky or when things start to get a yeah. little bit unpredictable, that's when the nerves kick in. Like, so I was flying back from New York uh, years ago, and my auntie was working on the flight. So I was up in first class, and you've got a bed though, and I'm asleep. Yeah. Now I've since I, I now know that if you're flying from west to east then you've got the tailwinds pushing you so it makes the plane is shaking about a lot more. It's worse yeah. at night and it's worse in the winter. And it's, so worse, went, and it's worse crossing the Atlantic the other way. Aye. So I'm asleep. I've had a few glasses of wine. I'm, I'm knocked out like I'm, I'm properly sleeping and I'm lying in a bed and we've hit what is, an, we've hit an air pocket. But we've, we've plummeted, <laughs> we've plummeted about two or three thousand feet. Now what's Three thousand feet in about two seconds. Aye. And now I have risen completely off the bed, like I'm not touching any surfaces. <laughs> and uh, I've woke up just completely like um, discombobulated. I've got no clue where I am. And uh, I've looked on this. Oh, the, the, the luggage racks have opened, by the way, and like some cases have fallen out for wow. the overhead luggage compartment. But then it's settled, right? It's, it has settled as quickly as it happened. But I've looked at the screen in front of me and it says we're in the middle of the Atlantic where probably Iceland is the closest country and it's far away. So I've, I've clinged on to my, I've clinged on to like the TV in front of me and I'm screaming and swearing and shouting. So my auntie says she's working and it's, you know, it's two in the morning and everybody's asleep and she's like, what's that noise? And then she's realised it's me shouting and swearing. I'm giving it all the fucking Jesus Christ and all that. So she's come in, right? And she's obviously trained as, as cabin crew will be trained to subdue passengers. No, she's put, she's thrown me down. She's put her knee on my chest and said, shut up, you nutter. <laughs> and then the two years, the two years have looked up the aisle and like the, uh, the other passengers in first class are looking and all they can see is one of the cabin crew pinning a first class passenger <laughs> down and shouting, shut up, you nutter. <laughs> knee on the chest. It's all right, he's family. She's went up and she's, oh. like, that's, she's like, that's my nephew and he's had a bit of, he's hurt a badger. But just the utter panic that went through me. Even I was landing in Venice recently and I was like, there was kids laughing at me because the plane, it was getting really shaky. And I'm like, why, why is this happening? And oh, it was horrible. I don't like it. For yeah, somebody one of the, one of the aborted landings as well. I know, but I think that that was my thing. The more I did it, I kept thinking that my odds were shortened. 
and then and then you go on seriously, and then you go on and you get completely irrational fears and start going right the first ten seconds because that's if you're going to if you, odds are if it's going to get done, you're going to get done because you hit a bird, a bird mm-hmm. strike, that's you. And then watching all those air nurses taking a sinister turn this podcast day, but even watching all the air crash investigation things, and mostly you look at seven three sevens. It's going to be of the older models. The back door is going to burst open because of decompression. So you then just go in, going right. What's that noise? That's the. I genuinely think I've never taken a, a, a flying lesson in my life. I think having watched them all and obsessed over it, I think I could fly a plane. The uh, after the SFA, what happened? Did you decide then that you wanted to go and set up your own? Because you're now working with Frame, and we'll talk about. Are you uh, an owner of Frame? I had. I'd always said I'll stay in the SFA for three years. Because I, again, when I went in, I thought, right, I'll go in and I'll tell them all what to do and, and then we'll get out of there. And then the Rangers thing happened. And about two years of my life, in fact, I'm still ongoing, but, but in work terms, everything else is forgotten about. It, it just took two, two years of my life in there. And the toll it took on everybody, because you get it from, from all sides. And, and when I look back now, you kinda, you get a sense of perspective that, not many maybe had at the time but after that then got married we went on the way and at that point I thought I can't do this I can't keep this relentlessly hostile and negative 24 hour job and keep a happy marriage at the same time And but my good friend Stephen McCrainer, who studied with twenty odd years ago at, as I said, Bell College, who had done the SPL's PR and when he was at Big Partnership, and I was a journalist who went to Sandy Greaves, Greaves Sports, and became head of comms when I was at the SFA and Greaves were a, um, uh, the kit retail uh, provider, and he jumped first. He wanted to do his own thing, and Frame had been one of their. Um, creative agencies and he realised they didn't have a PR side to it so it was an advertising agency um, 30 years standing mm-hmm. and I remember November so it would have been November before the wee one arrived so the miss, yeah, missus was expecting on the December or was the wee one one either, either way it was November we went out before Christmas and we talked about it do you want to come on board Went out for a long lunch, two bottles of red wine, went back home, pissed. Lindsay said, How's your, how was it? I said, I could. I'm handing in my notice tomorrow. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go because I want to find out for myself if all the things that I've learned, I can actually put into practice. Mm-hmm. So Stephen had set up the kind of PR side and there was a lack of sport. He's a big sports fan. I got annoyed at how many bad experiences I had with football PR types. So, collectively, we thought, right, let's let's do it. Joined, st- started off in the March three years ago, and no clients. Started doing a wee bit of work for Scottish FA, and and throughout that, pitched won some UEFA work, pitched some more, um, and it turned out to be best thing ever. Mm-hmm. So that's now been best part of three years we've got a good client base working across a number of sports um, and as you say not not just traditional PR as people see it that, that, that I say that to any new start coming in I show them these set up PR um, events 
with a big prop with fucking hundreds of writing on it. I said, if anybody ever puts that on for any of our clients, just go. That's That stuff's gone. So storytelling, bring the athletes to the fore, look mm-hmm. at different ways of doing it. And, and that's the kind of basis in which we, we set up the wee sports side of it. The like the UEFA stuff, I'm really interested in. I mean, so Aye. let's talk about that in terms of what you're doing. But I'd also I'm keen to know about the sort of intricacies of that. How does how does that come about? How do you get the opportunity to win that work? How does that then you know happen going forward? So UEFA were keen that they wanted um, to have a campaign behind women's football. I think everybody realised that women's football was growing in popularity, but it never actually was embedded in anything other than the need for people to be equal in their opportunity for, for athletes. But also, I think a lot of the times that, it, that women's football became almost the, the bit on the side. You need to have the men's football. And yeah, we should be, you know, we should have a... No. You, you speak to a six-year-old girl and I, I, I see it through my, my wee one. If you don't signpost them to it, then how the hell can you expect them to take it up? There's generations of kids who get brought up thinking football was a, the boys' sport and netball was the girls' sport. Mm-hmm. And 2020 is nonsense. So we knew that that was happening. We put our hat into the ring. I was fortunate, and, I, and again, when I talk about journalism helped me in uh, my career at Scottish FA, my Scottish FA career helped me with the kind of pitch process because I understand how national associations work, how governing bodies work, and how how to maximise campaigns and make sure that you can speak the right language to, to, to various groups. So went in, pitched to UEFA with some pretty big agencies, big London agencies who naturally would assume that they would get it. And here was a wee uh, agency from Glasgow, not long set up, developing client base and we won it and I maintain we won it because we adopted a no bullshit approach uh-huh. I think you get some of these big agencies it just becomes so ridiculous it becomes theatre where they walk you through we'll take you into an experiential room and walk you through actually there's a practical way of doing this that will save money and save the bullshit dance of we can promise this and actually never deliver it so uh-huh. That's that's what I've always done. I can, I think I've got a pretty good um, antenna for bullshit, and so if I can sense that in my previous work, then it helps me in what we're doing at Frame because being up front with clients, not trying to sell them stuff they don't need, working with sometimes saying no. I'd rather mm-hmm. not take something on that's going to make the client experience bad or take money for something you can't deliver. So I think that gets us some kudos as well because people know that if they come we'll be honest if it's not for us we'll see it but if it is then let's do something a bit differently let's not just have the stereotypical old former player holding a prop trying to sell something that's mm. that's gone that went the way of journalists' expenses like the way you're saying is in telling stories and signposting people I spoke to Laura Brannan uh, who currently works in the media production at Motherwell Football Club and she Oh I know Laura I would have I would have signed her up if I could when she left Copa 90 the, uh, We asked her about her opinion on women's football and somewhat controversial she said I don't care for it I'm not that bothered but we kind of got into the details of that and the sort of the minutiae of why she felt that way and we Well didn't... that's an interesting thing and I, and I listened to it and I think it's because again we're preconditioned to go girl women so you must like women's football 
I think Aye. people struggle, especially men, thinking that women's football is a different thing. And, and one of my real bugbears is that women's football, if you sell it properly, if you promote it, it, it looks nothing like the men's game. Well, what the point that Laura made very interestingly, and it sort of made me realise something that I hadn't previously considered, is that what I enjoy about football personally, and I think most of us, is 90% of it is the drama, the storylines, the character, the history, and, and the backstabbering. Rivalry and, the and hostility. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and it's it's the entire story. And then the other 10% is the actual art of the actual act of the game taking place itself. And there isn't any of that within the women's game. So maybe then it would only garner 10% of the interest because the stories aren't there, the, the characters aren't there, the personalities, the narratives, if you will. And this is the interesting thing we talked about out of lockdown and the way Scottish football's men's side's behaving just now. I think there's a generation of people, boys, girls, men, men, women, who actually have had enough of that and who actually just want to go for an experience with their family. And that's where I think the women's football opportunity is once people become familiar with the stories. And that's what we did at UEFA. Mm-hmm. That's how we won the pitch. We said, look, rather than putting people up to the media because they don't know them, so let's just give five or six girls across Europe, professionals, a handheld camera and go show, let people know what it's like, giving them an upfront insight into the life of a professional women's footballer. And it's not vastly different to the men's game. You have to work hard. You don't drive about in a flashy car though and it's relatable. So that was a huge help in actually letting people see, oh, they're just normal like me as opposed to those kind of stereotypes um, that existed well, if you're a women's football player hmm. so I think we've managed to smash that away to take it back to Scotland it still you talk about inequality and discrimination you can't get a beer at a women's football match because of something that happened in an old firm game at Hamden in 1980 40 years ago how's that, mm. how's that fair now I still have a bugbear about the convenience of government saying you can't be allowed a, you can't be trusted to have a drink at a game unless you're paying hospitality but for the women's game to still be um, bound by the Criminal Justice Scotland, that is mad. So I think that's an opportunity as well, when the time is right, to look at packaging up women's football as almost the antithesis of the men's game. I would like to see a sort of PR campaign and the logistics of this, or how this would go about, or how you would go about this. I have no idea. But in order to shift in those attitudes... Don't ask me. Why? Why? <laughs> you, know, in ter- you know, in terms of the way football is viewed, it, and not even societally, but I would say from the powers that be, you know, the fact that football fans are continuously criminalised, treated like absolute scum mm-hmm. and second-class citizens, and I don't think that's hyperbole. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that is is pretty much a statement of fact. That has to change. I mean, I'd see, if we if we were allowed to drink at the games, I probably still wouldn't. I, if I've got a drink in me, I don't really take in what's happening. Or my concentration um, yeah. but we should still have the opportunity. In, in a way, and I don't want to li- I don't want to liken Scottish football to the the prison system. Mm. But there, but I think there are similarities and there's a kind of phrase that allows you something learned helplessness. There's this lack of trust. So if you treat fans generally as untrustworthy, they'll then just reaffirm that because, well, you've told me this is how I behave, so this is how I'll behave. And in all of it, the alcohol debate doesn't... I will stand on the stage with anybody from government, from police, from um, crisis charities and anybody else, 
and let them know that the alcohol ban is actually making things worse. And I'll give them the facts, and I'll go right back to 40 years ago, which is the anniversary of the old firm game, and say that there were three factors that come, you know, in that game. Inadequate policing, because they'd all gone outside because they were told there were going to be riots outside. Sectarianism, which was the fuse that lit it, and alcohol. Mm. Alcohol gets banned when that was the third part. So there's the kind of cause and effect. Fast forward 40 years, and you're not telling me that having a controlled consumption of alcohol inside a stadium, when you might be driving, you might not do it, but the ability to do it is not preferable and will not change attitudes and behaviours more readily than encouraging people to get tanked up at the local boozer and turn up late at a game and then cause disorder. Mm-hmm. And the problem is if you continually say you can't be trusted, it's happening anyway. The Hibs encroachment or riot, whatever you want to call it, on the, the, the pitch invasion when they won the cup, you're not telling me that they weren't pissed up. Aye, you can't. That, that is really stopped. Like as I've just said, that I don't particularly like drinking when I'm watching a game. It doesn't mean I haven't done it. To get a quarter of bottle of vodka inside a stadium is the easiest thing in the world. It just goes in your pocket. It can't be seen. Aye. And then, you, and over time, if you want to make it an experience, aye, if you, you're actually goading people to do it because you've been told you can't do it. Mm-hmm. It's and the point about so the, the point I'm making about kind of prison and rehabilitation is there are few prisons who actually excel and, and people come out and are genuinely rehabilitated because of the programs in place uh-huh. but there are still many of them who are absolutely wasting lives of people because they're just repeating that cycle you'll go in you'll be made to feel like a criminal you'll go back out and you won't have changed your behavior you won't have changed your and so you'll come straight back in and so there is no element of rehabilitation and if you're made to feel like a criminal made to feel like a prisoner who's the lowest of them then that's how you will be that's how you'll behave and then you'll almost go out of your way just to say well if that's where you're anyway I might as well act like it and again Mm -hmm. it's too simple to draw the comparisons but I just think sometimes football police, government football authorities what is it that you want your audience to be in future and how do you make that audience um, attracted to your sport and I, I, I worry not for your generation, I worry about 15, 16 year old boys and girls just now looking at Scottish football, or maybe even worse than that, not looking at it because it's so far removed from their social radar. And that's the problem that football, football isn't, I don't think, appealing to the likes of your generation nearly well enough, not embracing the tech generation nearly well. I made that point radio yesterday. Mm-hmm. The biggest companies in the world, Uber, Just Eat, you name them. Tesla, they're creative, innovative people backed by big money. Two groups of people, innovation, I mean, you you could get tech brilliance um, whenever you want to come in and have a look at Scottish football, but they would get laughed at because their ideas wouldn't be within that kind of construct that people want to, uh, I, I think there's an element of fear. Why bring people in to say things that we don't quite understand? Put them in charge. That's what I've done in our uh, just empower young people to come forward give the innovation but Scottish football I think is in danger of losing its identity as the national sport or, or in danger of taking it for granted I would agree with that in terms of taking it for granted and thinking that there is no need for innovation or modernisation or sort of improvement or advancement because it will always remain because it's something that's passed down through the generations but 
when there's a when there's a greater number of options, then I wouldn't say that that's um, that is necessarily a given. You mentioned sports sound there, or well, the radio, which I would uh, assume to mean sports sound. Aye, that must have been quiet. I take it that's been quiet over the last few weeks. Anything happening? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> And but because of lockdown, it's become essentialist. It's it's theatre, um, and and that's why I've enjoyed it. I painted my fence largely thanks to sports sound. But there comes a point, and I, and I made it in the last couple of days. Statement o'clock. I'm fed up with it. I think fans are fed up with it, and I think it it demeans the game at a time. And I, right back at the start, my first coronavirus contribution was to say. At the end of this, we want people to remember the good that football can do and remember why Scottish football is the national sport. And I hate to say it, but the behaviours of people who should know better, the opposite is now going to apply. It's never too late to fix it. But I'd like to think that football can help cure a lot of ills. And instead, collectively, football has made itself a a laughing stock at a time when people are dying, at a time when people in society need something dear that they can hold and trust. Nostalgic matches have never been more popular. Player interaction, player accessibility on social media has never been uh, more welcome. And yet the chance to actually reaffirm its position as the number one sport, it, it's, it's so frustrating and so needless. And it actually demean, demeans its responsibility. Who or what has been responsible for the disarray that the game has found itself in or, or the disrepute? Politics. Politics. And again, I've, I've seen it on both sides. So the easy thing, and I've been on the other side, so, so I'm not making an easy go at the SPFL, but they're the ones who are in, uh, in the dock in this case. But the easy thing is to go Neil Doncaster or Ian Maxwell or Stuart Regan as it was before when the reality is the clubs the very clubs who are indignant have voted for that governance model they get the governance that they want uh. and that's the you go back years the 11-1 vote that renders things so difficult who voted for it? the clubs Rangers get down to the bottom division and there was the opportunity again for clubs to revisit 11-1 what happened? Aberdeen went the other way to preserve the 11-1 so I've got limited sympathy for clubs who are feeling the the downside of those voting principles now because at various stages they've all voted to keep the status quo. So the question, and I've no idea how the, the independent investigation EGM vote has gone, but it's almost irrelevant to, as a game, as a sport, surely we must all agree that we want better for the sport than what we've been served up in the last couple of weeks. Surely we want a sport that we can be proud of rather than trashing its reputation because in all of it, we keep hearing, oh, it's good theatre. Well, try telling that to a sponsor mm-hmm. when you cast in it and go, fancy, fancy sponsoring the League Cup or the Scottish Cup or the League? No thanks, you've spent the last two months toxifying yourselves. Brand association, in the same way that the newspaper business has changed, so the advertising and marketing business has changed. Brands want association. Brands want affinity. Speaking to people who are like-minded. Who's going to step up and say, oh, we speak your language? And that's the bit that in all of it, we talk about the greater good of the game. If any of those people who have used the phrase for the good of the game thought about the good of the game, 
they wouldn't have created this narrative of hostility um, and and fighting. It's just mind-numbing. And the saddest part is we've been in the movie before. Oh, and, and I suspect it will see it again. I, I, I would say suggest... that's what frustrates me. Mm. When, I, when I say I went into Scottish football because I thought I could change the world, and the older you get, the more you realise your own sense of mortality. But mm. I, keep, I had a stock phrase in there, it's easily fixed. But you need a will. I think you need to appeal publicly. You need to get fans on your side. And you need to actually do the things that will help you generate more money than fight and argue over a diminishing pot. Because soon there'll be people fighting over scraps at a table. I wouldn't mind if you're fighting over a feast. Fighting over buttons. What is... Ah, oh God, there's no point getting into this. It's been covered in sports, and I've got loads of <laughs> loads of loads of questions to which I know the answer, but I'd just like to draw it out of you. But I'm not going to play, play the yes no game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> put you in that position. Uh, going forward, obviously, as hopefully as lockdown ends in 2029 or whenever it is that we kind of get out. Now, what do you hope to see for yourself? You've obviously had quite a varied uh, career um, to date. Do you do you see yourself? continuing to grow frame are there any other aspirations that, that you want to go after I, yeah I think I think there's plenty of growth to, to come it's been an interesting and challenging time for 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 our industry as, as much as every other industry and in, in sector of the country but to, to do good work there's a bit of me that needs to scratch the I think player agents in the main get a bad reputation but I think even that business has changed. I've been fortunate enough to kind of grow up and help and, and work alongside a group of players. And there's part of me now looking at their own brands and profiles thinking, I can. I, I think there's a service that I can provide. I think there's a way in which you can mm-hmm. help players out because invariably the club goes, you can't do this, you can't do that. You become super famous and then you've got to deal with what comes next. And also... At the sharp end, you look at Ronaldo as an example of they become marketeers in their own right. And I think mm. players are now slowly realising that they're as much part of the marketing mix as the club's marketing department. And making people aware, again, I go back to Calvinism in Scottish football, we, we've got some terrific footballers who are on their way to becoming top class, world class in, uh, in England, but who still have this kind of tendency to go, oh, I don't want to be seen to be too smart or they see English players getting endorsements and stuff and there's almost this my pals will slag me well it can be the difference between a big money move or not it can be the difference between you actually getting that kind of fan adoration and not so there's, there's a bit of that that I wouldn't mind scratching the itch just to see if what goes on in my mind can actually work in, in practice never stand still decided to take up a guitar at the age of 40 and I wish I'd taken it up 30 years ago. But it's a, a nice distraction. I think I get I get restless. I get frustrated if I have the same thing over and over again. And that's why there was never a grand plan to do what I, what I did. But equally, I've been fortunate to be in businesses where no two days are the same. An office job 95 would blow the hell out of me. And so for as long as I'm motivated, so long as I'm annoying my wife with harebrained ideas, annoying folk at work with, stupid thoughts then try them what's the worst that can happen I'd rather try something and it fail than look back in 10 years and go I wish I'd done that as I did with my guitar I completely agree I'm the exact same can I go two days the same I like new things and I like to try things and and know for sure um, and often it can signpost you to 
to something different or to something better anyway. But I also can't wait to go back to a gym like you. Although my, um, my, my profile picture isn't quite as photoshopped as yours. <laughs> I've got witnesses to that. I've got loads. Uh, it's going to take me a while to get back to that. I've got weights at the back, but it's just not the same. You got weights? What have you got? I've got a barbell, I've got a squat rack, I've got dumbbells, and I've got kettlebells, but they're just the one. I know, but you know, you need variations of weight. So, like, sometimes for what I'm trying to do, they're too heavy, and other times they're too light. But variation, I've got a set of skipping ropes. That's it. I would give give anything to get back in the gym. Anything. I would forgo travel, holidays, pubs, the gym, but I I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. But uh, you never, you never know. I suppose we'll need to just wait and see. On on that cheery note, thanks, Sean. <laughs> uh, no, no, thanks, mate. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, an interesting insight into into a very interesting career. Top man. Thank you. Not a problem. To you at home or wherever you are who's been listening, thanks very much for joining us, and I'll catch you again next time. Cheers. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. From The Big Light Studio.